the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Let us examine this Passover lamb. Yesterday we were talking about how they would take the blood of the lamb and they would put it on the, the doorposts and they would put it on the lintel. And that, that that blood that they put on the doorposts and on the lintel was to be a sign of obedience. Now I want to ask you a question. A sign of whose obedience? Like obedience is a, is a uh, I don't know, a virtue, a character trait or something, right? So it must belong to a person, right? Or, or so, some willful being, right? So whose obedience? When he says, you know, slaughter the Passover lamb and put the blood on the, on the two doorposts and on the lintel, and if I see it, I will pass over you, and the destroyer will not enter your homes. But if it's not there, then I will pass through the home, and I will... Take the firstborn, right? Um, which is what we talked about yesterday. A sign of obedience. Whose obedience? We see clearly later on that the people of Israel were not obedient. In fact, God described them in their journey 40 years in the desert as stiff-necked and rebellious. So that's not very, like, a very coherent, uh, very, co very coherent with the definition of, of, of obedient, Right? Who was obedient? Jesus was obedient. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Isaiah, even Isaiah is comparing Jesus to a sheep who is silent before his shears. So the obedience... The sign of obedience that they are using to identify themselves is the obedience in this specific, very specific Old Testament context of the Lamb. And somehow, God says, okay, if you wear this badge of obedience, although clearly it's not yours, it's the obedience of the Lamb, then I will pass over you. You're exempt. Like, how did they get that blood? They got that blood from a lamb. How did they get the lamb? Like, because the lamb got slaughtered, right? And they took its blood. The lamb willfully dies. Like, it's a, it's a, very, it's a, very, strange, it's a very strange thing, right? The other thing which is very significant about blood in general is that blood is a sign of life. Right? God forbid, God forbid, you're walking down the street and you see this big pool of blood. What's the first thing that's going to cross your mind? Right? Somebody got hurt here. Right? Um, you're not going to think somebody killed a dog or something. I don't know. Like, you know, like, I mean, probably the first thing that would come across my mind is somebody got hurt here. Maybe somebody died. Right? Blood is always a sign of life. Why? Well, because like your heartbeat is a sign of life. And what does your heart do? Its main chief operation is to pump blood through your body, like through your circulatory system to circulate blood. And all the good stuff goes with the blood, the oxygen and the nutrients and all that stuff. Right? So all of that. So the, and, and many times in the Old Testament will say the life of an animal, for example, is in its blood, right? So we can say that 
Like why God pass over these homes and not touch them? And why were they exempt? Because the life, there was the, the, a sign of obedience and that sign of obedience was the life of the lamb having been slaughtered. So the blood is, the, is, a, is, is a sign of obedience. What other signs of obedience do we find in the Bible? Well, I'll tell a little story. There was one point the whole world had gone bad. Everyone was evil. Everyone was doing horrible things, right? And God comes to the last man standing, a guy called Noah, and tells him, I want you to build a rectangular box that's about the size of six tanks in the middle of a desert because it's gonna rain. Now, I want to ask you, how, you know, how long did it take Noah to build that? About 120 years, says the Bible. I don't know how they calculated years in that time. You know, God give him strength to work on it for 120 years. I can't imagine doing a project that size and getting ridiculed for it every single day. But he does it anyways. He does it anyways. The ark is a sign. Noah's ark, the boat he builds, a boat of sorts, it was kind of a big rectangular box, is a sign of obedience. Now what is funny about this sign of obedience as well? Whoever was in the boat was spared from the flood. Whoever wasn't in the boat swam for some time and then didn't anymore. Right? Funny, hey? Obedience and being spared, they seem to go hand in hand. Another sign, another symbol of obedience. How about Jesus? Uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So the cross that we wear around our necks, the cross that we hold in our hands, the cross that is a, a sign of victory for us is a sign of victory for us because it is a sign of obedience. Because that victory came through obedience. When the plan for Jesus was to die on the cross, he didn't say, pardon my French, hell no. He didn't say that. He said, thy will be done. I'm going to ask you a question. This is a question I ask myself all the time, and I don't know what the answer is. I'm worried. I'm worried because I don't know what the answer is. A couple of times, Jesus turns to somebody and says, foolish ones. He says it to the Pharisees. He even says it to his disciples after the resurrection. They're going for a walk. They're walking from one town to another, and they're discussing some stuff. And Jesus tells them, what are you talking about? And they don't recognize him because they think he's supposed to be dead, right? They don't recognize him. And they're talking. And they tell him, oh, you know, there's this man and he was a great guy and so on. And he's a great prophet. And we really thought that he was the Messiah, but, and so on. And he tells them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. And then he starts explaining to them the scriptures. And he starts from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And he exposes all of this to them. And then finally, he reveals himself to them in bread and so on. And the story goes on. Now, this is, this is my question that I ask myself, and maybe I ask you as well. If someone were to walk up to you 
and say, oh foolish one and slow of heart to believe, and then start to explain something to you, what would your reaction be? My reaction would probably be, you're the foolish one. What would your reaction be? The disciples didn't kick up a stink at all. They're like, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we are foolish. Yeah, we are foolish. Hey, are you foolish, Cleopas? Yeah, you're fool I'm foolish too. We're foolish. Listen to this guy. They just ate it all up. They just ate it all up. It didn't bother them at all. It didn't bother them in the least. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you think you have a perfect and correct understanding of absolutely everything that there is to understand in the universe? I used a multitude of superlatives to show that the answer is obviously no. It's obviously no. I am sure that every single person in this room knows something I don't know about something. I don't think that's a overly, like, uh, like, I don't think that's too big of a statement. I think everybody here is capable of teaching me something. But why is it that I would get so offended if somebody walked up to me and corrected me and told me you're wrong? You know why, why it is? Because, you know, I'm kind of proud. I have a bit of an, you know, I'm at my ego and so on and, right? So, but if you came up to me and you kind of said it gently and you said, you know, Father John, I know you're, you know, you're, you, you read a lot and you're very well studied and so on. And, but you know, I heard you, in, in, you know, the other day you were saying this and that. And I couldn't help but overhear. I think maybe what you meant to say was, right? And you'd find, you'd find a nice way to say it. What's another word for that? You find a gracious way to say it. So what we're seeing here is that there's a, there's, there's a relationship between truth and something else. And grace. There's only one person who married grace and truth absolutely perfectly. And his name is Jesus Christ. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, which is part of our morning prayers uh, that we recite daily, like uh, usually throughout the year, uh, it, the gospel that we, that, we, that we pray is John chapter 1. And in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Full of both. I want to tell you something. I have a lot of difficulty marrying these two things. I can be really nice to somebody, or I can come down really hard on them. And a lot of you who know me well have experienced both, I'm sorry, unfortunately. Neither of which are healthy. I'm learning as a parent of a, of a toddler and who's you know, well into her terrible twos, that you can't, you can't live on either. You need both. And ideally, together. Ideally, at the same time. But how? How? How do you do that? The only person who married them perfectly is Jesus. For the sake of time, I'm only going to take one example. The, the Pharisees and the lawyers, they figure, now we know how we're going to catch him. Now we know how we're going to trip him up, right? And so what do they do? They know that there's a woman in the city who's cheating on her husband. Everybody knows. So what do they do? They see her and they see and they, you know, and they see what, you know, they know the funny business is about to happen and boom, they catch her, right? Drag her out of the house in the bed sheets, right? You know, and throw her at Jesus' feet and say, so Moses said, 
that someone who's committing adultery should be stoned. But what do you say? Jesus kneels on the ground and writes some stuff in the sand or dust. And he looks up and he says, Let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Dead silence. They all look at each other. Everybody looks at the next guy. One by one, they drop the stones. One by one, they walk away. Jesus kneels down again, looks at the lady and says to her, Where are those accusers of yours? And she says, They're gone, my Lord. And he says, And you also go and sin no more. He doesn't tell her, It's okay, I know your husband's a real jerk, you know, but... Like, you can't, like, you can't go sleep around with other guys, but, like, ah, just, I know, I know, it's tough. He just says it to her as it is. Go. He doesn't tell her, you're not doing anything wrong. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, um, uh, like, you know, he doesn't diminish from what she's done. He tells her, go and sin no more. I mean, that implies that she's, that she is sinning. Grace and truth. Not one or the other, but both together, married perfectly. Another time, Jesus says to his disciples, they're telling him, you know, if only we could see the Father. And then um, Jesus says to them, I'm going to my Father. He says, but we want to go with you. He says, you, you, you can't come now, but you'll come later. And then they say, but, but, we, but, we don't know where your father is. So how can we go if we don't know the way? Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, the reason Jesus is full of grace and truth is because truth is not a virtue to Jesus. Truth is his middle name. He is truth. And so when I lie, like a little white lie, what's a lie? It's a denial of the truth. So I'm denying Jesus. Truth for us in Christianity, truth for us is a person, not a thing, not an idea or an ideology or, or a character trait or, or a virtue. Full of grace and truth. What about grace? Grace is also his middle name. The reality is, is that grace is not just something that God bestows upon us. It is something that God bestows upon us. But it is more than that. It is his very character. It is his very nature. It is his nature to give what is not deserved to those who don't deserve it. That's his very nature. That's who he is. So he marries the two perfectly. So, this is kind of like a good news, bad news kind of thing, kind of, right? The bad news is that I don't know how well I'm going to deal with finding out that I am one of the, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. But necessarily, I will. Necessarily, I will meet the truth. So, there's a few things that are guaranteed in life, right? Guaranteed in life, or like to quote Benjamin Franklin, of course, the you know source of all Christian knowledge and wisdom, right? 
<laughs> death and taxes, right? Or I could quote Ecclesiastes, right? Which also we were saying yesterday says, death is certain. You know, like the kind of like Terminator thing, meet your maker, right? Guaranteed, right? I'm guaranteed to meet the truth. And I'm also, that's like first premise. Second premise is I don't know everything. Like we all agreed about that, that I don't know everything. I'm not, I don't have perfect knowledge. So the third thing which follows then is that when I meet the truth, I will realize that I was wrong about a whole bunch of stuff. Maybe some of it will be little stuff. Maybe some of it will be big stuff. But I'm going to find out that I was wrong about a whole bunch of stuff. The truth is coming. But I have some good news. The truth has already come. The truth is right there. And the truth, we will be living the truth in all of its fullness on Friday and Saturday and Sunday in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross is truth. That God loves you and me more than death. Right? If you're willing to die for somebody, then you love them more than you love your own life. Right? That's truth. But there's another truth. That's not the truth that, that I'm scared of. That's the grace. That's the grace. The truth that I'm scared of is what is my response to that love? What is my response to that love? Yesterday we were talking about these two Hebrew words, uh, Abur and Pesach, pass through and, and pass over. And we saw that they're kind of buddied, they're kind of married. Passover happens with a pass through. Today we're seeing that grace and truth come together. They come together. The reality is this, is the truth is coming. The truth is coming where I will see the fullness of the love of God for myself. And I will also see the fullness of my response to God. See, the, pro the, 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 the thing, I don't know if it's a problem or a good thing, is that I forget. Like I forget, the, I forget a lot of the bad things that have been done to me, but I also forget a lot of the bad things I've done to people, right? Like amongst those people is God. But when I have full and perfect remembrance, when I'm reminded of the fullness of my life, and also I have a clear image of the fullness of the love of God for me, who will comfort me for the remorse I will have that I didn't, that I didn't spend my life loving the one who loved me that much. St. Isaac answers the question and he says, only Jesus can comfort us. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that the, 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 the theology that we, that we espouse is that it is Jesus himself who will come to comfort us in our own self-judgment, when we look at ourselves and when we judge ourselves, it is Jesus himself who will come to comfort us. That's grace. So again, we see that grace and truth come together. The good news I have is that even in death, 
Jesus is there. Wanting to comfort you. Wanting to comfort me. Wanting to hold us. Wanting to tell us, I make all things new. I'll make everything okay. But my question for you, and my question, oh so, my question for myself, is that, will I start accepting the truth now? Will I start accepting to be told, oh foolish one and slow of heart to believe now? So that when I, when I see the truth before me and I realize, oh how so wrong I was, I will be able to accept he who is both grace and truth on that day. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. I have sinned. Forgive me, my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Please pray for me.